Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have a very special guest, Denise Brousseau, who is the author of Ready to Be a Thought Leader, and she's the CEO of Thought Leadership Lab. Denise has quite a background. She actually has been um, acknowledged and recognized by the White House of the United States as a champion of change, which I can attest who she absolutely is. Um, she's the co-founder of an organization called Springboard, which is a startup launch, a startup launch pad that actually has facilitated over six billion in funding for women entrepreneurs, which is a topic very near and dear to Denise's heart. We're going to talk more about that today. Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here, Cheryl. It's great to have you here. So, where are you today? I'm in Redwood City, California. Ah, I bet the sun is shining. It is. It's absolutely gorgeous today. Well, we're so glad that you're here um, to join us today because, you know, um, thought leadership is something that we all should pay attention to. We, we see these experts out there who seeming, they seem to just, like, come onto the scene all of a sudden, and then they are everywhere. And, you know, a few years ago, no one would have really thought about, except people in the marketing and PR industry, how that actually happened. You have actually really uncovered all the secrets and have taught people how to do this in a way that is really um, in alignment with their own authenticity, which I think is, is really uh, nice to see and, and very powerful, very successful. So, Denise, Let's talk a bit about um, just you and your background. Now, where did you grow up? I actually grew up in upstate New York, Poughkeepsie. My father was IBM, worked in all the different IBM plants around Poughkeepsie. And, and then I had the privilege in, of him getting us transferred to Paris, France for my high school year. Ooh. So I went, I went to Paris for the American School of Paris for three years. And uh, that really is, I believe, a lot of what opened the doors to my eyes to a whole world. You know, not I think I, if I'd spent 20 years in Poughkeepsie, I'd be a different girl today. But it really allowed me to see just the, the world in all its flowering in that same time as I'm becoming a woman and really seeing what the world is like. It was really quite an amazing experience. That is so cool. When I think about being a high school kid and living in Paris, oh, oh how fun could that be? So <laughs> I, assume, I assume you learned how to speak French. I did. I came back pretty fluent. I spent a summer at a French camp and started, by the time I was done, was dreaming in French, and that's when I knew I was pretty fluent. And you know, now, of course, I go back and I'm embarrassed because my vocabulary is pretty pathetic, but uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be back. I'm always happy to be, whenever I get off the subway in Paris after, you know, flying all those miles, I just I just take this big sigh and think, oh, I'm home, because it really, Paris really does feel like home to me. Oh, that's great. Well, what do you remember most about those years in terms of, you know, what do you think shifted for you and how you saw the world? 
School of Paris was a magical place because it was people from all over the world. You know, we mm. it was actually the beginning of the Lebanese War, and so we had a mm. lot of kids from Lebanon. We had a lot of expat kids from many, many of the big companies, as well as diplomat kids, and we had folks from people who were just transitioning, as well as kids who'd grown up in Paris. And so we had a such a conglomeration of different languages and different backgrounds and different points of view. And yes, we were somewhat of us, some of us were just typical American kids, but we were in a, our idea of a weekend was to get on our mopeds and jet off to you know, to the Notre Dame for the weekend or whatever, you know, it's just a completely different experience. And, and I was, I did crew, I was the coxswain for the crew and we, we crewed by the, down the Seine by the Eiffel Tower on a Saturday morning. Uh, you know, it's just a very different world than I would have had if I'd grown up in the States. And it feels very privileged and elite, but it was also, I think, a real uh, moment to recognize that we're not the center of the universe and to have that, yeah. that recognition that there's more to the world. You know, I'm hearing in your voice a lot of gratitude for the experience. And really? as Yeah, you know, and, and as I think about um, being in high school, you know, as high school kids, we don't always feel gratitude, even though <laughs> it may be a good thing to be doing, you know, we don't always feel that. Did you have any of that sense of, of you know, I had to leave my friends, I'm missing out, I just really want to be back in the States? I think that the privilege for me was that I had just finished seventh and eighth grade, which if yours was anything like mine, was a time when you couldn't wait to get away from it. So, you know, here I am, first day of ninth grade, and I'm in a new city and a new country and a new place where I could start over and be whatever I wanted to be and not be that girl that I was in seventh and eighth mm-hmm. grade. And mm-hmm. and so while it's true, I was the youngest of three girls, and uh, while my middle sister, I think, did spend a lot of her time in Paris regretting it, years later I remember her saying to me, wow, I really missed out. You know, I really took the opposite attitude, and I, when anybody in the family would say, you know, my father would have a business trip to Germany, did we want to go to Germany? I was always the first one with my hand up, or my mom was like, hey, let's uh, yeah. let's go to, you know, let's take this IBM trip to Norway this weekend or next weekend. I'm like, yeah, sign me up. So I was, I was the kid who said yes to everything, and I just look mm. at that. I think maybe in contrast to my middle sister who said no to everything, it, it allowed me that opportunity to say yes. Well, that's, you know, so is that something that you think is innate in you? I mean, were you like that as a small child where you were kind of excited about life and said yes to opportunity and looked for things to do that were different? The best thing about the way I grew up was that I was always one in the family who was the cheerful happy optimist and maybe Mm. in rose-colored glasses I was born with or whatever, but I absolutely had that that bounce out of bed mm-hmm. attitude from the young child and, and a lot of energy and a lot of get up and go. And uh, I'm sure that has served me truly well in all the things, you know, as a startup person, I suspect I needed that energy <laughs> because I do love new things and I love new opportunities. Maybe I get bored a little too easily. I remember my grandmother saying to me that if there was one word she'd like to ban from my vocabulary, it would be bored because I got <laughs> bored very easily. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, there's that happy well, yeah, you know, when I think about the the entrepreneur in you and 
how many times you have created new opportunities, um, and most of those have been highly successful, and how you view possibility. And just having had the experience of, you know, getting to know you, your sense of what's possible is much bigger than just, say, you know, the average person walking down the street. And I do think that that has to be kind of inborn in somebody who moves into entrepreneurship. And you, you can't be afraid all the time, right? You have to be yeah. willing to just go for it and see what happens. And so, you know, I know that you consult and coach entrepreneurs a lot, people who are, you know, with big startups and, or maybe starting out as small startups that turn into big startups. Um, and, you know, what is the thing you see in those can you tell early whether they're going to be successful or not? I wish I had that magic power. I would be I would be far more wealthy. <laughs> so no, I can't always tell. I can I can frequently tell the ones who are not going to be successful, but I can't always tell the ones who are. And I think that the way I can tell the ones who aren't going to be successful are the ones who think really small. And one thing I learned from many years of running the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, starting the Springboard Venture Conference, is that those with the really big ideas, men and women, are the ones who are more likely to succeed, partially because if you're, if you're going after a small idea or you're only going after the incremental improvement, there's many more chances that you will fail. Whereas if you're going after something big, there's many, many, many paths to get there. And if the first path doesn't work, you have 20 other paths you could try. And I think that that's, that's one reason. And the second is that it's far more exciting and engaging for people to get on board with a big idea than it is mm. with a small idea. So you're more likely to attract the kind of sponsors and, and volunteers and champions and investors if you have a big idea because they want that big idea too. And I think yeah. that's where I really see the differentiation. So it is a bit of risk-taking. It is a bit of managing your fear, surrounding yourself with the right people. But those are all, if I can see people doing that, I suspect they're going to be far more successful. Mm. So what is it that you did, you know, you say that in Paris you were able to, you know, have all these experiences and it was really an opportunity to reinvent yourself to be, you know, whoever, whatever you wanted to be. So after high school, what did you decide you wanted to be? Wow, there's a there's a girl who's changed her mind a lot. I you know looking back at that person now, I'm not sure I recognize her. And I went, you know, I had the uh, I followed my sister to Wellesley College, where I was very very happy. I really loved my experience at Wellesley, but I did change my major eight times. <laughs> so you know, trying to trying to figure out eight? what I wanted to really? do, but I eight? Eight, eight times. The last day when we had to declare a major or else was the last. You know, that was the last time I changed my major. So, yeah, I was—I did not know. And it took me a number of years to figure it out. And I guess if I look back, you know, there was no such thing as a major in entrepreneurship at Wellesley College. That was the girl that was trying to come out, and there was nothing like that. There was a lot of very staid there was a lot of directions to go be in investment banking or go be in finance or go be in, uh, you know, something related to managing big operations in a big company. and. You know, I look now at those jobs and I still shudder. I mean, I shuddered then and I shudder now. Those are not me. And so being in a culture like that, that just it didn't allow me a lot of space to find myself. So I kept looking. I kept looking. Yeah. And so you got your degree. You, I did. Also, you went to grad school too, right? 
I did. Um, so, yeah, I finished my undergrad, and I went on, but it took me nine years. I took uh, nine years to go to work and uh, tried a couple different things and finally fell into technology, and then I went back and got my MBA. I, so I started my first company when I was 26, and then I uh, gave up both my technology career and my own business, and I went back to business school at Stanford at, um, at uh, let's see, what year was that? 31, I think I was, by the time I went back to grad school. Mm-hmm. And so you went back to grad school because you thought you needed what? You know, I mean, I was curious about, you know, what is it that people think they don't have that they want and that grad school will provide? It's really a dual answer to that. The first is that when I was 28, 29, it was a real crossroads for me in my life. My my mother got breast cancer, my father got emphysema, and my best friend's husband got a brain tumor. And I really talk about that year as the real transition for me because it was a lot of time spent at hospital beds and a lot of time to think and a lot of time to look at my life. And I did have a great job in the technology industry. I really loved it. And I did have my own company on the side and I was making good money. But it was that moment when that whole year that I had a lot of moments of thinking, is this all there is? Is this really but my is this my life, and I just realized I wanted something much bigger. I want I had much bigger ambitions, and that is one of the two reasons I went back to Stanford. Um, the second is that I was running my own business, and I had a, a Macintosh consulting business, and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> you know, I really didn't. <laughs> I, mean, I was successful despite myself. I, I got a lot of clients because people knew I had this expertise, and not very many people had that expertise. But right. I no, I mean. I had no idea. So it was really just thinking that, wow, maybe if I go ahead and got an MBA, I would have a clue. And I'm not sure it really did teach me that much about how to run a business, but it did give me a huge number of, of connections and a lot more confidence and an ability to figure it out that I didn't right. have before I went. Right, right. Well, and, you know, there's something to be said for those connections and the network um, that that provides, especially from a place like Stanford or any of the Ivy League schools. Um, and we see that happening a lot, right? We see people who come out of that type of environment, that type of higher ed experience, and their network is lifelong. And, you know, people who go to state schools, et cetera, they tend not to have that same experience. And it makes me wonder about, um, you know, the intentionality. You know, I mean, people do say, well, I want to go to a school like that because I want the network following that and the successful people that I know I'll be able to um, take advantage of or, you know, capitalize on as I'm moving through my career. Uh, Do you think that really made a difference for you? I think both the Wellesley and the Stanford Connection have been inevitably the most important thing that has happened to me in my career. The Wellesley sisterhood is hugely strong, and, you know, as I was just doing my book launch, it was my Wellesley sisters who just stepped up every single time to host events Mm -hmm. for me and to really champion my book. My Stanford Business School classmates have helped in many, many other ways, and they're the people that I co-founded my nonprofit with, and uh, several of them have been key advisors and champions of me over the years and vice versa. And I do know that that Stanford network in the Valley, particularly mm-hmm. since I decided to stay in Silicon Valley, I mean, that's, there's always some Stanford person you can call, and that's been a real right. plus. Right, right. So let's talk about how you got here. 
today. So you just released a book, which is a fabulous book, by the way, Ready to Be a Thought Leader, How to Increase Your Influence, Impact, and Success. So why thought leadership? What made you curious or interested, or what made you decide to put this in writing? The the journey actually began 10 years ago. Uh, So I had the good fortune of becoming a accidental thought leader. And I don't say good fortune because it was also hard work, but uh, the the time in 1999, 2000, 2001, I was running a nonprofit in the Valley called the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs. And it was the beginning of the dot-com craze. We had tons of new members. We expanded to seven cities. We started this venture conference. And as a result, I was one of three or four people in the United States who was at this intersection of women, entrepreneurship, and high-growth companies, so venture capital-funded companies. And so I was regularly getting calls from the media, regularly getting opportunities to speak, invited to, you know, judge business plan contests, travel, do get on the cover of magazines. I mean, it was just a very heady, heady time mm. uh, until it wasn't, right? And then, of course, the dot-com crash happened, and then it wasn't quite so fun mm. anymore. So you have the good and the bad. But then five years later, I got a phone call from a friend who said, hey, you know what? You know how you became that thought leader in in women's entrepreneurship? I want to do that in my field. And so we worked together for three years, and we took her from a complete unknown in her niche to being uh, testifying in front of the U.S. Senate, recognized by the White House, headhunted by the governor. And it was such fun to work with her. And then I had an opportunity to teach a workshop one weekend. And I said, oh, well, you know, I should teach how I did that. And I started looking at my own journey. I started looking at her journey, and I put this workshop together. So, you know, three years ago when I got a call from Wiley Press, I got an email one day saying, have you ever thought about doing a book? I said, yes. And I pitched this idea of doing this, this journey and how do you do this path from leader to thought leader. And that's the work I do today. So I wanted to put it in a book so that others who can't hire an executive agent, you know, to help them with it. And how, how can yeah. they how can they do that? And how can they make their own journey? Because I believe we need more thought leaders. And that's what I wanted to empower. Well why do we need more thought leaders? Why do we need more thought leaders? The, yeah. uh, the, the, the truth is that the if I look at the kinds of people that you and I know, there's a lot of incredible talent and expertise and credentials, but many of these people are not playing at their highest level. This, mm-hmm. this idea that they could have a bigger impact, that they could have a seat at the table, these are the people that we need to have their voice in the world. And, and for me, a lot of it is more women and minority voices at the table. We need more on the, you know, it, whether it be at the table on a Sunday morning news show, whether it be on Wikipedia, whether it be in the op-ed, whether it be writing legislation, involved with regulations, running for office. I believe that we have many more opportunities for many of the women leaders and the and the, the very senior executive men as well that I work with that they have a chance to have a broader impact and build a bigger platform, and they don't know it and they aren't taking advantage of it. And we need their voices, we need their ideas, we need their expertise, we need their influence. So that's what I'm hoping that I can not only convince but also empower people to do. Well, we have more to learn from Denise Rousseau when we come right back.
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How do you feel about the future? Tune in each week for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. You can be a great leader by learning from the inspiring stories of amazing visionaries who are shaping our future. Everyone deserves to create their own vision, and Kate and her guests will share the tools that you need to make it happen. Make a weekly visit to the Voice America Business Channel for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Be inspired. Become inspiring. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with my very enthusiastic guest this morning, Denise Rousseau. Denise, I tell you, every time I'm around you or have a conversation with you, I leave kind of infected with this um, new found energy, you know, kind of sense of, of everything is possible. And, and as I think about that, that way you see the world, you know, through the eyes of what's possible. Um, and yet, I also experience you as highly practical. You know, I, I see you as, as someone who believes that, you know, big ideas can, can happen, and you believe there are ways to do that that are really practical, and that's part of what you teach, and that's part of what I like about your process. So you have Put together this process for um, creating thought leadership. You have um, you said in our last segment that you know people who are big thinkers or who have big ideas, who, who want things bigger to happen in the world, aren't likely to be able to succeed if they go about it in a way that um, you know will will support them and that you know they connect with the right people, etc. So talk a little bit about you know, some of the principles of becoming a thought leader. What are those? The There's so many things that I thought about when I was writing this book. One of them is that I do believe that there are some practical steps. So I, I like that you've brought that up, that there are some resources that I shared in the book, some sort of how to, yes, this is a big idea book in that the big idea is we need more thought leaders, and, and but it is a how-to book because I do yeah. believe that there are some steps that people can take. And, you know, I, I really look at it as it begins with what, where is your heart really 
what are you passionate about? What is it that excites you? You know, thought leadership does not happen overnight. You don't become that go-to person. You don't become that reliable voice in your industry or your niche if you don't have a passion around a specific area. Mm-hmm. So I really began there, and that was uh, that was fun for me to think about how do you – people often ask me when they come to me as clients, they say, well, what niche should I play in? Because often they, they have a broader background or they have – they've got different things that they're excited about. And, and as a girl who had eight different major possibilities in college, I get that. <laughs> but I also yeah. know <laughs> – but I also know that by picking one niche is when you can be truly effective. You can always move to another. But it's this idea of finding that, that place where your, your commitment and your passion and your expertise and your interests all align, what I call the thought leadership intersection point. That's when you can truly make a difference. And so that's sort of the first point within the book. Well, and so talk a bit about how you help people find that. You know, what are the practical steps to identifying that. If I hear a lot of people say things like, if I knew what my passion was, I'd be doing it, which I find fascinating, right? You know, it's, it's, it's the fact that people can't touch that in themselves. And, and I, I have some thoughts about why that might be, but how do you get them to identify what that is in them? Part of it is the peeling away some of the onion uh, the book itself has a very practical step-by-step exercise, and uh, I'll sort of, I've actually developed it now into a worksheet because I do think that there is a, a, a really very methodical way, but often it's peeling away the onion in why we don't go after what we're passionate about. Because what, what often, often happens is that you have told yourself that that passion area is not a place either that's a, you'll ever make any money, or B, that anybody mm. cares about, or C, that you can make a difference. So there's often this, this story of why we're not connected to our passion. So I certainly had that story for myself. You know, I'm working at Motorola at a technology company, running international business development and managing a product team, but my heart was not in it. And my heart mm. was like this little nonprofit that I was running on the side, working with women entrepreneurs. But I had a story in my head, and it was a very sure story. I was positive that I was right, you know, which was that I'd never make any money if I stepped out to do this full time. Mm. You know, nobody would ever fund it. I had I had ten ideas that were I was sure was right, and every one of those ten was incorrect. When I started peeling back the onion myself, right, and and so that's what I love to do with people is like, what are your ten certainties about why you're not going after this, and let's. Let's unpack those. Let's see if they're really, in fact, true. And how might we reframe or rethink or or actually find you the right connections that are going to allow you to do what you do care about? Now, it's not always true. I I don't want to dismiss that there there are certain passions that you can't make a career about. But and that a good, honest job every day is a really valuable thing. But is there something you could be doing on the side to be making a difference? Is there something, some way you could be weighing in on something you care about, even if it can't be your career? I do also really want to encourage people to think in that way. Hmm. And so it doesn't have to be, to be a thought leader, you don't have to make that your whole world. Yeah, I'd like to use the story of, of this guy in uh, South Central L.A., uh, Ron Finley. He calls himself the gangster gardener. Now, this guy is a full-time artist, but he started building 
excuse me, he started growing a garden in on a strip of land in front of his house that he was, as he said, he was expected to take care of that land. It was city land, but he was expected to take care of it. started planting a garden. And pretty soon, the garden starts to grow, and he's planted fruit trees and, you know, some big stuff. They tell him, they send him a note, please tear out the garden. And, you know, for many of us, that first time we get the no in our company or whenever we start something new, we stop. But he didn't. He started a petition, and he said, you know, we need to be growing good things in South Central instead of strip malls and fast food restaurants. And he started a movement around growing organic food in a, in a place where no food was being grown. And now he's got not only the petition, he got the city council on board, he got people, they've gotten the rights to build gardens in, in city abandoned lots and in home, back of homeless shelters. Now that's not his full-time job. He does this because yeah. it's something he cares about. And I do think you can be a thought leader on an issue or an idea and get really engaged and involved with it and have it not be your full-time work. Mm. Otherwise, most of our politicians wouldn't be elected because nobody can drop everything to get President Obama elected, but they can do a lot on the side. So there's a lot of movements that happen in this country by people in their quote-unquote spare time. And so I absolutely think Mm. we should start there. So is it ever too late? You know, as I look around and I see people who are um, probably the least afraid of jumping in and doing things, um, trying new ideas or believing they can build a company, um, often in, in our current environment, it's really young folks, right, people who are in their 20s. Um, what about somebody who's in their 40s? You know, are they, is it too late for them to start something like that, especially if they've been in the corporate world for a long time? Having worked with so many women entrepreneurs when I was running the Farm for Women Entrepreneurs in Springboard, I was intrigued to see how many were starting companies in their 40s and even their 50s and their 60s. I uh, And there's been some statistics that show many people over 50 and 60 are actually starting companies. So I, I don't think there is an age. I think it's a mental age more. Are you still excited and energized by your idea and ready to take it forward? That's more the the conversation than what your chronological age is. You know, I got interviewed by a guy on a radio show this past week. He's 75. He's written 85 books. You know, okay. (laughs) I felt like I was a little shabby and I should get a move on here. (laughs) I don't think it's an age conversation. I think it's a mental mental conversation about what are you ready to take on and and risk can be different in different ages. You know, what? Once your kids are out of the house, you maybe have a better risk profile because you don't have to worry mm-hmm. about their college education money. And and I've had I had women in some of my early stage entrepreneur groups that were pregnant with their first kids and starting a company. So I don't know that it's an age conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, that's interesting. And so it also makes me wonder about um, gender. And I only ask the question because. Um, when you when you look at the percentage of people in corporations, for instance, the percentage of women who actually rise to CEO levels versus men, um, you know, there's a big disparity there. And so, is there any correlation between that and then the number of people who become thought leaders? You know, is there a correlation between the male and female? Um, does it does it line up the same way as it does in the corporate world? 
I'm going to answer that in a bit of a controversial way, Cheryl, because actually I believe that the reason there are less women at the top of corporations is because we are the canary in the coal mine, that most of these corporate cultures are pretty damaged and they are pretty damaging mm-hmm. for individuals. And I think women believe that they have more choices and they will leave a toxic environment and that they will not be party to some of the ways in which people are being mm-hmm. treated as you know, I certainly look at my own career, and I certainly look at other women that I've worked with for many, many years, and many of them do take entrepreneurship as an option. So we see the huge growth of women's entrepreneurship. Now, not not as many are starting bigger companies. I do want to think women need to think bigger and, and push for bigger opportunity, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with us leaving corporate America. I think we are... We are actually doing it because this is not a great place to work. So uh, let's start there. And then to answer the real question that you asked, do I think there's more, um, that we need more women thought leaders? Absolutely. And I do think that, unfortunately, the, the cacophony of voices in our media and the, the stories that are told and the focus on on the, the negative ways the world is working. I mean, if you turn on the news every day, it's just disaster, disaster, disaster. And yeah. I don't think that that would not be the way I would run a, a news station, and that would not be the kinds of stories that I think need to be told every day to us. Mm-hmm. We should be reinforcing more of the positive voices. But it is hard right. if, if, the, if the common do, dominant culture is around uh, white male voices over 50, it does feel a little less like we have enough role models and enough mm-hmm. uh, encouragement to to get our voices out. So I would say, yeah. yes, we need more, and we need to keep pushing against this this uh, dominant culture and, and shift it to be one that is much more diverse and much more similar to what we see around us when we walk out of our houses. You know, I... This is this whole issue of uh, gender um, disparity and the male versus female um, differences in leadership, and, you know, and just the way you know how life is led, etc. Of course, does not fall strictly on gender lines. It, it, it is no. you know, often a masculine. Uh, feminine energy or approach to the world, um, and society is going to reinforce that in in the genders. And for years and years, I mean, since I was a young person in the corporate world, um, I did not have the experience that many women have. I did not have the experience of not being recognized, of um, not being asked my opinion, of um, being um, not listened to when I was in disagreement with the broader perspective. Uh, And so as a young person, I had a hard time with this whole thing about women, you know, are discriminated against it because it wasn't my experience. And I thought, you know, come on, you know, just just don't don't worry about it. Just go do your job. And and as I got older and I began to watch this in a different way, um, you know, I began to see what was happening and realized, well, that wasn't my experience, but that is a broader experience, you know. And so I began to look at what was different about me versus you know, people who were having the experience. And, and you know, I never asked permission. I never waited for somebody to say it was okay. And I see in women, in not, not only women, but in more women than men, that there is that waiting to be given permission to do something or to offer 
one's opinion. And I think, why? What is this? Why do we keep doing this, you know? And I have no idea why I grew up. Maybe it was because I was the oldest daughter, um, and I just spoke my mind no matter what. Uh, and, um, you know, I see this so much. And so does this also then fall into one's belief about whether they can be a thought leader or not, right? What do you think? Similar to you, Cheryl, I did not have the experience of, of very frequently of being overlooked. You know, I definitely think you could imagine from having met me that I'm not a girl who stays quietly on the sidelines. My <laughs> And that didn't always serve me to my best advantage. I, I had different experience <laughs> corporations that, that made me realize it was not a place for me. But the uh, but I do a lot of my work in – I work a lot with women's leadership groups in companies, and I do absolutely see this, this asking for permission, and I do absolutely see people saying, yes, 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 I will take on this work without asking for more resources, without demanding right. more pay without expecting the the respect that goes with that, that there's something about this, I don't know, if we want to be liked more or we want to be the good girl or we want to be sweet and kind instead of accepting our ambition and accepting that we deserve a seat at the table and demanding it. And so Mm -hmm. I hear you 100% that it is a good question of why we have socialized our girls this way, but we have. And, you know, this whole band bossy uh, framework that's out there, I'm sure you've seen Sheryl Sandberg's new push about banning the word bossy. Uh, I am we were talking about this in my book club last night, and almost all of us at the table were called bossy as we were growing up. Yeah, I was yeah. proud of it. I mean, I, I liked being bossy. <laughs> I never thought that was a bad thing. But I do yeah. think it is negative for girls. And, and uh, you know, we could be reframing that as bold instead of bossy or mm-hmm. a lot of other powerful words around ready for leadership instead of being a bad thing. And, and there's so many voices. As I've been out talking about the book, women tell me stories about uh, being raised by the nuns and being told to ask less questions. I've been told by people in uh, their cultural background being told not to, uh, not to speak so loudly. I've been told by women whose fathers uh, taught them to, to be quiet about how much money they make. So I do think that there's a lot of different voices that we heard from our family, our culture, and our, just the people that were around us in our schools that, that taught us these messages. Right. And so then the other thing I see is that um, as women are saying, okay, so I don't want to be that and I want to change. What I find is that women then congregate together, have this conversation, and talk about how they could be different or how the corporate culture needs to change or how um, men or whoever they're working with, you know, who needs to be different. And they do this in a vacuum with each other. Mm. And this is something I've never, ever, ever, ever understood because how do you ever make change if, in fact, the other half of the equation is not sitting in the room, hearing this, understanding it in a way that then they get that they're part of this, and then coming to agreement about how does everybody show up, right? How does everybody show up? And, uh, and it feels like it's something that we really need to break through, it feels like it's something that we really need to shift and then be 
willing to acknowledge all talent and acknowledge all voices um, in a way to build the bold leadership, right, no matter who you are. And, you know, so I'm wondering if how you have experienced women and their willingness to step up to be a thought leader. Have you seen this happen differently between men and women? Well, you give me two things to think about in that question. First, I agree with you, and I hadn't really thought about it the way you've just framed it, and it gives me some work to do because I do work with a lot of women's networks, and I do think that they isolate themselves, and I've been guilty of it myself. And so thank you. I will use that as a framework for my work in the next year to really start encouraging some of these big company women's networks to think about how they're integrating men into their uh, leadership and into the conversation. So thank you. That was a very good reminder and a way up call for me. I appreciate that. Uh, and then <laughs> going to your second part of your question, which is do I think that men and women are different? Um, to be honest, I haven't seen dramatic differences. Uh, I am always I love those initial conversations when someone calls me and says, I'm ready, you know, I want to be a thought leader, help me, and to hear what has what hesitations they have, to hear what holds them back, to hear what they've done, to hear their background and their platform. And, you know, if you could take out, strip out the voice and strip out the, the gender from the conversation, I don't hear a huge difference. I, I hear a similar desire. I hear a similar ambition. Here's what I do see differently. I get more calls from men than I do from women. I I prefer to work with women because I want more women's voices, and I about 75-80% of my business is women, but especially since the books come out, I will say the calls are four to one from men as they start to learn about what I do. They get that they need to do this more than women get it. So once I get the right person, there's no difference, but helping, seeing, seeing themselves in that frame as I could be a thought leader, men mm. see that more quickly than women do. Well, That's what I need to do. Yeah, I, I, I'm, that doesn't surprise me at all. We're going to be right back yeah. and have more to talk about with Denise Rousseau. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. 
Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Denise Fusso today, author of Ready to Be a Thought Leader, How to Increase Your Influence, Impact, and Success. So, Denise, we've been talking um, for a long while, the last two segments, and I realized we haven't even actually, I haven't even asked you, so what is a thought leader? <laughs> How would you define that? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's been a, it's, that was such a critical component for me as writing this book, and I didn't realize as I was writing this book how many people actually don't like that phrase and they don't like those words. So I am trying to sort of wield those and redefine those and recapture those. And for me, it is somebody who is somebody who has built a program, project, initiative, a change, implemented as a change agent, something in one organization, company, city, whatever, and then scaled it and built community around it in a way that creates effective long-term change, maybe creates a movement, creates a, a significant new way of doing things. I do think that there's a lot of thought leadership behaviors, but I think thought leaders themselves are those who are scaling movements around ideas or around new ways of doing Mm. And so becoming a thought leader is different from being a thought leader. Mm. That's true. Mm. What I see so, uh, those who are, yeah, I think that's a really good frame. So go ahead. I didn't want to interrupt your question. No, go ahead. Well, I just think about this as, you know, there's a lot of people who already are the sort of go-to person in their niche, and they're acting in ways as thought leaders and really are, you know, adding to the conversation, uh, being the, the person who is providing ideas and new ways of, of doing things in their field. But becoming a thought leader, going from someone who might be relatively unknown or doesn't have anything that's really theirs that, that they can call their own, that, that, that they can build thought leadership around, is a different journey. So I do, of course, work with those who really are already pretty well established and want to now raise their profile, get that seat at the table, become that voice uh, in, a, in a broader way. But then I also really enjoy that work with those who are not yet there, who don't yet have a voice mm-hmm. or a seat at the table, and helping them to, to determine what is it they're going to to be known for. So my client in, in Chicago, you know, she started uh, with, together, we helped, uh, helped her start this program, and now she scaled it to three cities, going to seven, and now she's really this big influencer in her niche in healthcare innovation. Uh, you know, my client in the utility industry, similarly, I think that this is, uh, you've got to have something that you can call your own that is something you've actually done in order to be a thought leader. That's my framework about it. And so, so then I think about your work with people who are young and doing startups. Um, you know, they don't really have a track record, right? 
Yes, and that's one of the things that's interesting because as a CEO, what's in, what's changed in the world now is that people don't want CEOs of companies, no matter if they're big or small companies, just talking about their product features, just talking about me, 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 and my company, my company, my company. But instead, mm-hmm. what is it doing to impact change? So I'm always talking to people about their, what's the what-if future that you want to see? What is the big change in the world that you're bringing about? Like, you know, when cloud computing came around and, and Salesforce began, you know, you could just imagine that the CEO of Salesforce would just talk about Salesforce and why you wanted to buy Salesforce. But he really had a bigger view. You know, he really understood that this is about changing the way we do work day-to-day by creating this cloud computing movement, as it were. And he was really around a broader system change. And that's what I try to help people think about. What's a broader system change? That's when you can be a thought leader if you're talking beyond your one company, one product, one service, Mm -hmm. to implementing systemic change of some sort. And so what do you think is the um, most audacious idea you have ever heard from somebody who says, this is what I think, and I want to be a thought leader, and I want you to help me do this. And you actually had to take a step back and think, huh, can I really help that person? Wow. Um, I'm actually in the middle of this conversation right now, and uh, it's funny you should ask that. You know, I, I, I don't want to name names of a client, on, so I'll, I'll be a little careful in how I answer this because she's not yet public with what she's doing. But this is a, a woman who runs a foundation that has had a, a it's a mid-sized foundation, has had a pretty big impact in her in her niche, and she wants to take it to a whole nother level. I mean, she's relatively mm-hmm. new at this foundation, and she believes that, that their foundation could have a, a really an international impact that is as punching way above their weight, as she says, and and it's super audacious, and it needs to happen, and it's very exciting. Uh, we were good fortune that there was actually an article that supported it in the New York Times just this past two weekends ago. So, you know, mm-hmm. what you got is not something completely crazy, and that actually made me feel better once I saw the article supporting her point of view. But it's mm-hmm. way big for the kinds of resources she has. And so what we're really thinking is, and we sat down for an hour, for a whole day and talked about who does who are the other influencers she needs to bring on board. What are some of the things she's going to need to put in place with her own group to actually make this possible? And what is she going to need to do to shift her own behavior and her own actions in the world to to be that leader of that that push and that initiative? And that was really fun and a little scary because because it could fail and and it could be pretty public if it fails. So I do think mm-hmm. that, that I do think about those things. About I don't always lead with that, what the the risks are, but I do think about those things, and I try to help prevent those. Well, and then how do you coach people to be ready for potential failure? Part of it is, of course, that you want to put in place the things that are going to prevent failure. So this idea of aligning to building yourself a personal board of director, aligning with other influencers in your niche, joining your ecosystem, making sure you've got others reverberating your voice and amplifying your voice. So one is to sort of prevent failure, but the second is to to, to be the... Um, to assure that there's some resilience there, that people have uh, the... The, when the little failures come that we talk about, how do you recover from those so that we're kind of ready to deal with the bigger ones that may happen? Because you don't know. Mm-hmm. What, you mm-hmm. don't know what the big ones might be, but you have to build resilience uh, along the way to to be ready for those. Well, you know, and I, I think that's a key 
element for leadership, too. It's a key characteristic for people who want to be leader in their organization, much less a thought leader in their organization or out in the world. Um, and I've always thought that we don't build this enough in kids. If anything, we kind of pummel it out of them. I think they come into the mm-hmm. world with it. And then we pummel it out of them. And then, you know, people like you and I who are coaches and work with executives and leaders, you know, we spend time trying to help them refine that in themselves. Yes. And um, yes. so so I, I'm wondering, do you have a way to really assess someone's level of resilience before you start working with them? Well, one of the things I'm seeing is, in companies now, I just did a big project with a company with a CEO, a large global company with a CEO. It turns out I find he actually, in an interview, he wants to know three things you failed at. And I, and in my book, I talk a lot about this idea of your failure report or let's make better mm-hmm. mistakes. So part of what I like to know is what didn't work. And I, I have a questionnaire that I send people in advance that says where, you know, what didn't work and what's your biggest failure mm-hmm. and you know, how did you recover from it? And and I like to have those conversations. Most of the time, that will come out pretty quickly in, in a potential conversation with someone. They'll tell me where things went awry or where they got stopped. And so mm-hmm. I kind of want to see what they did at that point. Uh, but it is, it's true, we do too much insulating. And I have a friend who has done a lot of research in this. They call it grit in, high, in college and elementary school and high school now. And, you know, how do we teach grit? I do think that you're mm-hmm. right it out of kids by overprotecting them, and I tease my sister about it when she packs my niece's, you know, suitcase for her when she's in college. This is not, they got to let these kids nail a bit, and, you know, get bruised a bit. So I do think that's pretty important because Lord knows there's going to be vicissitudes and, and crises along the way, and you better have understood what that felt like a little earlier. Well, yeah, and that, you know, that is a concern of the real young 20-something these days, right? You know, was that they had um, parents who did too much for them. And, um, and yet these are the same kids that are moving into these big idea startup companies. Um, and some of them aren't even finishing college because they just want to do something, quote, more exciting. And, you know, so that must be really affecting the way they – um, they then show up in that startup. I mean, you've got to be resourceful. You've got to have resilience, and yet um, these this doesn't kind of match what their upbringing has been in their generation. I, last night I got invited to see Tiffany Schlein, uh, the filmmaker's new film about uh, this idea of characteristics and how you build character. And she talked about some research by Carol Dweck at Stanford who has looked at the, the two different types of people, people who believe with it when there's failure that that's the end of it, you know, that, that it's all over. And then the others who believe that failure is just a natural part. They fall down, they get up. They fall down, they get up. Yeah. And how do you how do we teach the kids that second behavior, that it's not just because you failed once, it doesn't then mean you're a failure. Those two things yeah. are not equations, right? And yeah. that's, I think, a critical component. Somewhere along the way, I must have been the second person, that growth mindset that just believes, okay, i got another bruise, let's keep going. <laughs> right. <laughs> something good. right, right, right. Yeah. And help them see yeah. the good ahead and help them see that, that, that the possibilities did not get eliminated just because they screwed up or, or they made a big mistake. Well, and it's really helpful to have 
a coach who will help you remember that about yourself. And, you know, you do a really good job of that with people as you are taking them through the growth and um, sometimes really scary process of becoming a thought leader. And, Denise, I know that people are going to want to know more about you and your work, and, and I know there are people listening to this who are going to want to say, I want her to work with me. And so how can people do that? How can they learn more about you? How can they reach you? The best place is to visit my website, which is thoughtleadershiplab.com, and, or Google me, Denise Brousseau, B-R-O-S-S-E-A-U. You'll find a lot of articles that I've written on this subject, and, of course, my book can be found on Amazon, Ready to Be a Thought Leader. So I absolutely encourage people to, to grab a copy and, and go through some of the exercises and find some resources and some ideas in there that I hope will encourage them to move forward. And if they're ready to take a big leap, I hope they'll give me a call. It has been a real honor to have you with us today, Denise. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a really fun interview. And remember, everybody, the book, Ready to Be a Thought Leader, How to Increase Your Influence, Impact, and Success, can help you be a thought leader. And you can call Denise, and she can get you there. So, Denise, I hope we have you back in a year and see how things have been going. I look forward to it very much, Cheryl. Thank you. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and leading conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.